following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Uh, you all know Bill, right? Everybody knows Bill. Bill had not been feeling too well, so he we went to the doctor, and it was uh, a barrage of tests that he experienced. And then he and his wife Mary went into the doctor's office after the test and after all the conclusion and blood work had actually come back. And he said, you know what, Bill, uh, while you go get dressed, I want to talk to Mary a little bit about your situation. And this is what the doctor said, Mary, your husband has a rare and potentially terminal disease. He's suffering from a nervous, potentially fatal stress-related disorder. You're going to need to create a totally stress-free environment for your husband, Mary. I know you've got a career, but you're going to have to quit your job and become a stay-at-home wife. You're going to need to get up a half an hour early every single morning, put on a fresh dress, fix your hair and makeup, prepare a nutritious breakfast for your husband with emphasis on fresh fruits and whole grains. Send your husband off to work with a giant kiss and a giant hug, and as soon as the door is closed, and he leaves the house, you put on your work clothes, and you scrub that house and clean that house from top to bottom, removing all possible allergic and pathogenic sources of stress. About a hour before lunch, because we're going to demand that he comes home for every meal, you need to shower and get ready for your husband to return, and when he returns, you want to make sure you prepare a light lunch for him, uh, with emphasis on fresh fruit and salad. Send him off to work again with another kiss at lunch and spend your afternoon thoroughly cleaning your home once again for his homecoming in the evening. When he comes, make sure you greet him at the door, be friendly, be smiling, freshly showered, dressed, give him a kiss, give him a hug, lead him to his favorite chair, give him a refreshing drink and turn the TV on and give him the remote and tell him just relax while you prepare for the evening meal. Make sure that every dinner is filled with all of his favorite dishes. And after dinner, encourage him to relax while you tidy up and clean up some more. The kitchen, lay out his pajamas, draw his bath, be attentive to his every need in the evening, and of course, be as just as romantic as you possibly can be. Well, the doctor goes, okay. She looks at him bug-eyed and... She then uh, goes and gets her husband in the foyer, and on the ride home, husband Bill says, well, what did the doctor tell you, Mary? Mary was quiet for a moment, and then she said, he said you're going to die. There you go. (laughs) Damage and erosion happen in relationships, and if you're watching the current deluge of television programs and movies that are coming out, you're going to find attitudes, attacks, and assaults on God's design for marriage on a repeated basis. And ultimately, if that's all you fill your mind with, you are definitely going to be eroded in your relationships, and it is going to affect you. Now today, instead of turning to the Word of God, we have families and couples who actually go to the secular-designed Google to get answers on marriage and parenting. And if you follow those, you're definitely, as a Christian, going to undermine what God intends for your marriage and your relationships. 
if you allow your life to be filled with all kinds of secular pursuits, not necessarily evil, not necessarily sin, but instead of divine pursuits, so you're filled with sports, you're filled with entertainment, you're filled with video games, you're filled with going to places and special places and events, and not God's people, not the study of God's Word, not fellowship, not service, not worship, you will eventually, as a Christian, damage your relationships as a believer. Attitudinally, we live in a me-first society, and some of that leaks into the way that we treat our marriages and our spouses and our relationships. In fact, today I read almost 10 articles that basically emphasize the fact that as a society, we have transitioned from the priority of relationships to the priority of material things. It's now material things over marriage as a society, and it's amazing to see that people are even taking longer to get married. The average age right now in this year for when a couple finally do get married is 30 years old for men, 28 years old for women. People have moved away from that, and it's the destruction of God's designed sexes where He created male and female, and with that destruction, it makes it much more difficult to follow God's design. And there is also, sadly, in many churches, little biblical teaching on marriage, on God's design, on roles, on relationship, even believers sometimes succumbing to false ideas about marriage and relationships because they're not immersed in the Scripture and doing things through the lens of the Word of God. Now, you understand that when God created man, He quickly created woman. And He married them, and the two became one, very from the get-go. And marriage relationship is so sacred to the Lord Jesus that when he designed it, he designed it would be for life until death. It's supposed to last our entire lifetime. Marriage is founded, if you actually study the scriptures and you begin to see it, how it's played out, based on two crucial keys. The first key is an unbreakable vow that you make before God and witnesses, and that's typically done at the marriage ceremony. And the second foundation, or what makes up a biblical marriage, is their sexual intimacy, their union done on the honeymoon, and it can only be broken by two things. Two things make up a marriage, two things can break a marriage. The violation of the vow through desertion, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, or the violation of the union through adultery, talked about in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and other places in the Scripture. Now there is a third way to break a marriage, right? And that is through death. Now death is not to be planned by the spouse. Are you with me on this? Okay, understand, uh, Ruth Graham was asked one time, and you've heard me share this with you before, uh, she said, well, would you ever consider divorcing Billy? And she said, divorce, never. Murder, yes. But divorce, never. And understand, the Lord telling us and teaching us that God created marriage and He values it so much that He clearly died out through the prophet Malachi that He hates divorce. It says in Malachi 2.16, you can see it there in your outline, for I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. He allows divorce for the innocent party, over adultery, over desertion, but he hates divorce. Say it with me, God hates divorce. Have you ever been in? Here we go. God hates divorce. He does. 
Now, if divorce occurred before you became a Christian, God tells you, reaffirms all throughout the New Testament that all things become new in Christ. The innocent party who experiences adultery or desertion by your spouse, you are loved by Christ. And grace and forgiveness and love are granted freely by God to the repentant who have divorced. And so God puts those caveats in the Scripture, in His Word, to be gracious to the innocent and to communicate to all people that He hates divorce and He loves marriage. It's His design. It's His plan. Now our society has way going on on the deep end on concerning a marriage and their perspective on it. But understand, two weeks ago, we began this series. We were working our way through Galatians, which we're going to get back to in just a couple weeks, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We took a break between chapter 2 and 3 because we believed it was important that we reaffirm marriage in our midst. And so we're taking these four weeks, this is the third of those four weeks, looking at God's design. And when we began this process, we started with an understanding of the book of Ephesians. Now the reason for that is this. We're looking briefly at Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, which is the longest section in the Bible concerning marriage. It's very clear there. And yet, you don't want to take that section out of its context. You always want to take the Bible in its context. So whatever's happening in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians also relates to your understanding of verses 22 to 33. Those have to be true as well for marriage to work the way he's described in chapter 5. So that first week we explained to you that there are some truths that must be true in your marriage that really are foundational before you even get to chapter 5, 22 to 33. And that was chapter 1. You don't want to be ignoring God's sovereign purpose for your marriage. God tells us that He has a will in chapter 1, and that will is to bring about His own glory, telling us that God's will for us is His own glory, and that includes marriage. Marriage is to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. And therefore, marriage is to the glory of God. It's not for you. It's for Him. It's to reflect Him. Marriage was designed so that He would be on display. Chapter 2, it's real the emphasis there, talking about that you're dead in your sins, you need to be made alive by Christ. You never want to minimize your own sinfulness. You never want to minimize your desperate need for God's grace. You need His grace to be saved, but you need His grace to live every single day because you're continuing to battle with sin all the way to the point that you enter into heaven, correct? And therefore, you need to be living by His grace, and that's how we interrelate with one another, by God's grace. Chapter 3 taught us you don't want to be overlooking the incredible love of God to fill your life. We have this weird, distorted view that though we're commanded to love and to care for one another in our marital relationships, the source of our love is to be the love of God. And the love of God is described as deeper and wider, etc. And God wants you to know that depth. But if you ignore that in chapter 3, you're not going to actually be the husband or the wife that God intended you to be or the friend that God desires you to be. You don't want to make sure that your source for your relational commitments is God Himself and His love for you. Chapter 4 taught us that we're not to avoid our interconnectedness to the church family. And we saw from other portions of Scripture, not just chapter 4, that we desperately need older women training younger women to like their husbands. 
and chapter 5 of 1 Peter, we need these older men to be leading younger men to be the men that God desires them to be. And therefore, we need the body of Christ in order to be actually fulfilling the role of husband and wife as described in chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. And then even after that section of Scripture, chapter 6, we don't want to be elevating your children over your marriage. He definitely, in all contexts, teaches that parenting, that children, that the role of the father in Ephesians 6, 4 is all to be fulfilled after marriage. It's the foundational relationship and part of the basis of your parenting is to be that marital relationship and to make sure that is the priority relationship. And you're saying, Chris, man, that's a lot. Yeah, it is. And in fact, it feels impossible to be able to pull that off. Yes, you're correct. And that's why he says in Ephesians 5.18, which we looked at last week, that you must be what? Filled with the Spirit. You can't do it. God has to do it through you, and the only way that you're actually going to love that spouse is to be filled with the Spirit, that He would then work through you in order to put Christ on display in that way that God designed marriage to be, that Christ is on display, that it is for His glory, and that's why it occurs, but no one can have a godly marriage unless they work at being filled with the Spirit first and foremost. Now today, we're going to look at then how can a wife... Be an asset and an encouragement in that whole process in marital relationship and how she can also hurt that relationship. And so therefore we're going to look at now 522 through 33. Briefly, it took us 11 weeks to go through it. The first time we went through it as a church family, we're only going to do it in two weeks. So we're going to hit the high spots here and the main emphasis. Today, how is it that wives can damage or cause their marriage to be a delight? And we've understood already that Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 are our position in Christ, what Christ has done for us. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 is the practice, the walk. We're to be walking worthy of Him, walking in love, walking in wisdom, etc. And then filled with the Spirit. And then when you get to these verses, you're going to find two things emphasized. It's going to be, number one, the exhortation to submit and the command to love. Two things. Husbands are to love and wives are to submit. Everything else in the text kind of falls along those two commands. But I want you to look at the overall passage with me. I brought up my iPad here and you're going to see behind me a whole bunch of Greek. And you can't even hardly see it. But this is what I look at when I'm preparing a message and trying to exposit the word out of the program Logos. I used to do it right out of the Greek text, but here we go. What I see when I first see this, I've highlighted certain verbs, and it becomes really obvious here that right here is a command. And this command is for husbands to love their wives. And then when I look at this section, I see, oh, another command is highlighted. Oh, and this one is also for husbands to love their wives. Wow. And then I keep looking here, and I look at verse 28, and I'm like, oh, wait, husbands are to love their wives. And then I look at the rest of the verse here, and oh, man, husbands are to love their wives. Husbands, what are you supposed to do? Oh, my gosh. And what do you think the main emphasis of this passage is? What's the answer? That's right. Love. No, no, no. Husbands love your wives. This is directed at husbands to love their wives. Are are you getting it? Okay, there are other emphases in this particular text, but this is the one that stands out. Two times commanded, 
two times exhorted, husbands are to love their wives. Are you with me on this? Okay? This is what God has called you to do. This is His plan for you. Now understand, when you look at it in the English, you'll see you know, the same thing. You're going to see a command for husbands to love their wives. You're going to see a command for husbands to love their wives. You're going to see an exhortation to love their wives. You're going to see an exhortation to love their wives. Oh, wait, wives, wives are to be subject. Well, this verb right here is actually assumed from verse 21. It's not even in the Greek text. Uh, this one here is in the text to subject yourself like Christ does the church and like the church does to Christ, excuse me. And then you look down here, wives see to it that she respects her husband. But the main emphasis of this passage is for husbands to love their wives, right? And wives are to submit, exhorted to, and wives are to respect their husbands. That's basically the main emphasis of the text. You don't want to miss the main emphasis and the main message. And we like that word love, but we chafe a little bit on that word submit in our particular culture. So I want you to see submission the way God does. And once you see what God is asking of both the husband and the wife, and to make that marriage work this week and next, you won't think that it's unfair at all. Now wives, next week's going to be focused on husbands. It would be criminal if they're not here. Criminal, okay? Just a little encouragement there. But go to the fair. You've been to the country fair. You've seen maybe the two-headed cow. Have you seen the two-headed cow? I went in, I didn't see the two-headed cow, I saw the two-headed snake. And anytime you see a two-headed anything, you automatically go, that's not right. That's not, that's not going to work. Listen, it's the same in marriage. A two-headed marriage is freaky. It's not the way God designed it. When you travel by plane, you've flown, I'm sure you have. There's a pilot and there's a co-pilot. And the last thing you need is for both of them to be fighting over the controls. All land the plane. All land the plane, right? Are you with me on that? That would be bad for air travel. Everybody in agreement? Very, very bad, okay? Understand, in order for marriage to work, the husband and the wife must pursue functioning in God's design. Both the husband and the wife have to die to self. You have to be thinking about what God wants in this relationship and what is best for my spouse. What God wants, not you, dying to self takes you off the table. And you need to function the way God designed. Now, Gene and I actually don't talk a lot about this because we just practice it and it works. Understand, in order to get there though, you've got to know what God teaches and what He designed for you both. So let's look at Ephesians 5.22. We'll look at women first, men next. Husbands are to love. Wives are to submit. Everything else in this passage kind of explains those two truths. So what's the main point? How are wives to respond? What is their job? Main point in your outline, love means wives die to self by submitting themselves, providing respect. Now, this is like the man who asked the lady librarian, uh, ma'am, can you tell me where to find the book Man, Master of Women? And she said, fiction counter to your left. There you go. What is the greatest relationship that you have ever known? Was it dad and mom? Was it some couple that, you know, was a relative that you got to watch and observe? Maybe it was a, a couple in our church that have been married a long time and they really love each other. The answer we should say if we're a Christian, a born-again believer, 
The answer we should say is this. The greatest, best, purest, most wonderful relationship we've ever known is the Trinity. The Trinity. One of the greatest secrets of the Christian life is that the answers to all of life's questions, all of life's difficulties are found in the character of God Himself. When we understand who He is, we can under, better understand who we are because we are made in His what? His image. Therefore, the only way to understand marriage is when we understand the divine relationship between the three persons of the Godhead. It's the Trinity that gives us the model that relationships all are based upon and husband and wives in marriage is based upon. We love relationships as people because God has been in an eternal relationship. That's where it comes from. And that's why the Bible affirms again in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the Father here in the context, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit of God. All three persons, the Bible teaches there is only one God, and yet He is manifested in three persons. Don't ask me to explain it. That's the mystery that we're presented and is taught both in Old and New Testament. And what is amazing is that that unity, that equality, there are different functions. Even though they're one, God, different functions. 1 John 4.10, look at it in your outline, the Father sent the Son. John 14.26, the Father sends the Holy Spirit. John 15.26, the Son and the Father send the Spirit. And in John 17, the prayer of Jesus demonstrates the submission of Jesus the Son to God the Father during the Incarnation. And so in the Trinity, there's plurality. In the Trinity, there's perfect unity. In the Trinity, there's perfect oneness. And yet, in the Trinity, there's also authority and submission. All three persons of the Trinity are equal. All three persons are God. They all share the same essence. And yet there is authority and submission in the Godhead. There's no inferiority. There's no dominance. There's no dictatorship. But there is simply authority and submission. It is the very design of the Trinity which God uses to teach us how marriage works. This is true of 1 Corinthians 11.3 there in your outline. As God is about to discuss the role of women, He makes this statement about the Trinity as the reason why there are different roles in marriage. What's He say? I want you to understand that Christ is the what? The head of every man. The man is the head of a woman. And here's the shocker. God is the head of Christ. Listen, God is the head of Christ, authority, submission, and yet Christ is equal to God. He is God. The man is the head of a woman, authority, submission, and yet men and women are equal before God. The principle of authority and submission in marriage is not an outdated cultural principle. Authority and submission are qualities found in the very person and character of the unchanging God of the universe. It has been that way from eternity past. It will be that way in eternity future. Understand, submission of a wife in a marriage to her own husband is not something that men dreamed up. It's not to oppress women. 
the practice of submission has been around as long as God has existed in eternity. The role of men and women is based upon the person and function of God. The role of men and women is based upon the person and function of God. We are in His image. We are imitating. We're supposed to be showing Him off the way we relate to each other because then it demonstrates the Trinity. Are you getting it? That's what He's saying. We are imitating God, the Trinity, first, best, and greatest relationship. Submission is a godly quality. Submission is a God-like attribute. A way in which we bring glory to God. So, what is submission? What does it mean? Well, to submit literally means to rank oneself under another's authority. True submission to authority is submitting to God as the author of all authority, and it's demonstrated by following the the lead of another. It's a military term. It really is. And it means to follow orders. So how is it that a woman demonstrates this in the context of a marriage? Let me give you three practical points that spring from the text here. And we're just looking at really 522 and then we'll kind of look at 533 as we kind of look at the summary of this entire passage. First in your outline, wives submit by being their husband's number one fan. Their number one fan. The submission of a wife is to her own husband only. The word submit there is used 39 times in the New Testament. Five of them, out of those 39, are addressed directly to women to submit to their own husbands. Not all women to all men, but wives to their own husbands. Look at the way that they're listed there for you in your outline. All five references are there. Ephesians 5.22 that we're looking at. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Colossians 3.18. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. 1 Peter 3.1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. 1 Peter 3.5. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. And Titus 2.5, be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands that the Word of God may not be dishonored. Five times we are seeing in the Bible that women, wives in particular, are to either be exhorted or commanded to submit themselves in such a way as to subordinate themselves under their own husband's authority. She does not submit to every man, but only to her own spouse. It's your own husband. It is your own man. There's a a primary relationship here. We ride husbands all the time. You know, hey, make sure, guys, that your wife is more important than your career. Your wife is more important than your sports or your hobby or the other loves in your life. But we also need to remind you wives, your husband is more important than all your kids, than your ministry, or if you have a job or a career. It is your own husband your one and only. There is a hint here when he says own of possessiveness. There's a hint here of belonging in that phrase, your own husband. Being his greatest fan means you listen to him over your dad or your mom. You respect his judgments. You delight to meet his needs. You're thinking about him in everything. You're making brownies for the kids. You're thinking about one for your husband. You esteem him for his provision, his hard work, his protection, his sacrifices. His encouragement comes from you. You want to free him up as he serves Christ. He is your own husband. 
And that's why this text kind of springs some key questions. So I listed three of them for you. And here's the risk. You either ask today or this week. But you need to ask your husband this. Ask him, do you believe, husband, that I am your number one fan and that for me there is no one else I delight in more except for Christ? Because that's the way God designed it. Secondly, wives submit by treating their husband like they would treat Christ, giving their best. This is a little shocking, but take a look at Ephesians 5.22. It says, wives, be subject to your own husband. Circle this. What did he say? He says, as to the what? The Lord. Whoa! Literally, that says, wives, treat your husbands as if he were the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow! Now, I know you wives right now are saying, he's not and I can't. Okay, I get it. That's right, but Jesus can through you. See, that's the point of looking at last week and being filled with the Spirit. Maybe you can't stomach submission to your husband, as, but as a Christian, you can submit to Christ, and this is what he asks you, even if your husband is a non-Christian, 1 Peter 3. Christ empowers you through His Spirit to get it done. In your own strength, it's impossible. But God can through you. And so as you're submitting to Him, you're submitting to Christ. And you're submitting to Him as if He were Christ. And Christ says, submit to Him as if you're submitting to Me. Because life is busy, we tend to give our spouses later on in life the leftovers. Whatever time, energy, finances, focus, attention, we have left over. But Jesus says, give Him your best. Your first, after me, your most, your heart, your attention. Now, I think this fits for both husbands and wives. I really do. I think that's just clearly taught in the way that you would sacrifice yourself for your spouse. So when I got a hold of this, first time I went through this passage, I went, you know what? I'm not giving my wife, Jean, my best. I was taking one day off. As a pastor, I have the ability to you know, change my day. And typically, pastors take Monday off. But pastors, uh, you know, interesting enough, on Monday, like everybody else's Monday, is your worst day. And especially for pastors who have then poured themselves out in ministry on Sunday, they're walking around talking to themselves on Monday, blah, 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 you know, you know, and, and maybe one brain cell comes on after four cups of coffee. I mean, it's an amazing moment on Monday, and I realize that, you know, Gene's watching me bounce off of walls, you know, fumbling and bumbling around because I'm wiped out on Monday, and yet I'm not giving her my best, so I determined I'd change my day. I changed my day to Friday is my single day off. I counsel people on Sunday. I do all kinds, I mean, on Saturday and all kinds of things on Sunday. And Friday was my best day. I'm ready for Sunday. I've already done all my prep. And so I'm ready to go. I'm fresh throughout the whole week. And she gets my best day because that's what the Scripture tells us, to give our spouse our best, not our worst. Understand, before you freak out, understand submission to authority is found in the New Testament being directed at business. Your employer, your children are to submit. Your government, you're to submit to government. You're, you're to submit in the church and to elders and to each other as Christians and in marriage. Submission is a part of who we are as Christians and rebellion to authority, except when that authority demands that you disobey the Scripture, which just happened recently from our government. But understand, when it does that, then you have to obey God rather than man, but understand another, every other circumstance, you cannot be in rebellion on earth and be in submission to heaven. You can't. Anytime you rebel against God's designated authority, you're then acting more like Satan than you are Jesus Christ, 
who is the ultimate rebel Satan is. And that's why in 1 Peter chapter 3, it tells us that godly women actually pursue submission. They go after it. True submission is actually an initiated action by wives. It's most often the command to submit in the middle voice, which means you act upon yourself. It's not him telling you to submit. You are submitting yourself to your husband. It's something a wife chases after, regardless of her husband's action or inaction. And I like to read this passage, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, with Abraham in my background and Abraham's failure. Remember Abraham's failure? What did he say about Sarah, his wife? He chickened out and said, she's my sister. He lied about Sarah twice, and yet how did Sarah respond to big fat liar Abraham? Look how he responded. She says, for in this way in former times, the holy women, Sarah, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, Master, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Wow. Calling him Lord after doing that. Jean, my wife, tells me, I'll call you Lord, Chris, but only Lord with a little L. Okay, so... Uh, that's supposed to be funny. It didn't work in any service. So there you go. <laughs> Submission implies respect and complimentary words and building up your husband and encouraging your husband by comments, motivating him to be the husband that he can be. And here you go, expecting him to be the leader he's supposed to be. There is real power in expectations. Did you know that? Real power. Let me demonstrate it for you. There was a test school that went to a middle school, and they said to this middle school that we can now predict who of your B and C students this year will become A students by the end of the year. We can predict that by giving them a test. So they gave all the teachers of the school a test, and the students took that test, and then this institute gave each teacher the name of four to five students in their classrooms who were B and C students saying, these students, these four to five, are going to become A students by the end of the year. They're gonna. And at the end of the year, shockingly, 90% of those B and C students raised up in their GPA, many of them, most of them becoming A students. And then the test school that administered the exam announced to the teachers, we want to let you know something. The test was fake. We didn't test anything. We just picked random names out of your classroom of all your B and C students and gave you those names. What did that teach the teachers? It was their expectations in those students that they would raise up and do better in school. Their expectations and the power of that actually drew them towards greater GPA. Isn't that amazing? In the same way, wives, when you submit to your husband, you're expecting him to rise up and be more of what he should be. You're actually forcing him, in a sense, to do that. And you're giving him what he desires most, which is respect. Go back to Ephesians 5.33, if you look at the passage. The beginning of the passage is wives submit. The end of the passage is wives respect. He says, nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself. That's the command for husbands. And let the wife see to it that she what? Respect her husband. The Greek word respect is phabau. That's where we get the word 
phobia from. It is literally to be filled with awe over your husband. Fearful, respectful, meaning this. It's really difficult. Really difficult to do. The toughest choice for a husband is loving his wife when she is unlovely. But her greatest need from him is the security that comes from unconditional love. The toughest choice for a wife is respecting her husband when he is disrespectful and not being respectful. And yet his greatest need is unconditional respect. Ladies, just as your husband can choose to love you unconditionally, you can choose to respect him unconditionally. You say, how? I've given you a couple of thoughts here. Respect begins with your focus. Your focus. Are you focusing on your, str- your spouse's strengths? Or are you focusing on your spouse's weaknesses? Now, we could spend all day describing your husband's weaknesses. We might not come to an end of that endless list. But understand, what are you like? Are you like a vulture or a hummingbird? You've heard me say this before. A vulture, when it flies over a desert, finds a carcass because why? That's what it's looking for, a carcass. A hummingbird, when it flies over a desert, will find a flower. Why? Because that's what the hummingbird is looking for. What are you wives looking for in your husbands? Carcasses or flowers? That's the point. I mean, you could fill a page full of dots and go, there are all the weaknesses, but what else do you see? A whole lot of white paper. I also think husbands need to take note of this because it really weighs on us to ask, would your wife have actually married you if you treated her then the way you treat her now? Secondly, respect involves your thankfulness. Are you thankful for your spouse? Do you see ways that God uses your spouse as a catalyst in your life, even when there's negative elements and negative characteristics or really struggles in that marriage? It's a way in which you can bring God glory to honor Him and to show Him off. Bible calls marriage the grace of life. That means it's God's grace. It's, it's God's grace that saves us. It's God's grace that is entered into this relationship. And it's God's grace that needs to be demonstrated in your relationship. But it can only be God's grace when we're filled with the Spirit and God manifests Himself through us. And you need to be thankful for that. When you're filled with the Spirit, it says in the text in 520, you will be thankful. You will be thankful. And it's absolutely essential to say thanks to God for your spouse and to be thankful for your spouse because no marriage can survive the constant barrage of negativity and unthankfulness. No marriage can survive negativity and unthankfulness. A barrage of that, a barrage of depression, a barrage of doubt, a constant discouragement, and even sarcastic insults. It's proven fact that those marriages do not endure. That's why we need to be thankful. So ask him, would you today or this week, husband, do you believe that I am committed to following your lead? Let's take this home, if you would, so it's key points. Letter A in your outline, the key issue with marital roles is dying to self. 
You know, you cannot be a Christian unless you die to self. You can't say to the Lord, I've got something to offer you. You say, I've got nothing to offer you. You did it all. I'm dying to myself, my will, my way of doing it. I'm totally entrusting in your way, your will, to pull this off in salvation. And it's the same thing that's required in marriage. It has to be the denial of what you want, what you desire, what you think, and what God wants, and what's best for that spouse. The dying of self. Absolutely crucial. You need to be able to, maybe today, see yourself as someone like, I've never seen God's grace manifested. I've never seen God manifested in the way you talk about when you're filled with the Spirit and His character is manifest. I've never seen that. Well, maybe you need to turn to Christ in faith. Maybe you need to die to self and depend totally on the work of Christ to save you and repent, which means turning from your way of doing things, your sin, and doing things God's way. For those of you who are saved, if you're hung up about loving or submitting, the real commitment, the real issue, the real exposure here is your unwillingness to die to self and follow the example of the cross. Did Jesus on the cross die to self? Yes or no? He said, let this cup pass from me. He says, I, I, I don't want to go to the cross, but your will be done. Right? He died to self. He said, I'm going to do his will and what's best. That's what he says. So admit to Christ, your mate, that maybe you haven't been dying to self, and then by his spirit, seek to treat your mate as more important than yourself. Listen, you're saying, how does the marriage demonstrate the Trinity? It's when it's you, and it's her, or it's you, and it's him, and Christ. There is a triunity there, and you're wanting him to be manifested, and when he is manifested, that's when marriage works, when he's manifested. Letter B, true Christians submit to authority. It's who we are. It's what we do. The Bible says each of us are to submit to, and here, right out of the New Testament, parents, Luke 2, employees, Titus 2, secular authorities, 1 Timothy 2, law enforcement, Romans 13, a church eldership, 1 Peter 5, to God, James 4, to Christ, Ephesians 5, to the Word of God, Romans 8, to each other, Ephesians 5, and wives are specifically commanded to submit themselves to their own husbands five times in the New Testament. It's a part of who we are. We submit. Husbands, have you learned that you are under the authority of God? You are under the authority of the Word of God? You are under the authority of your elders, your employer, to other Christians, to law enforcement? The easiest way for a wife to submit to a husband is for that husband to submit to the Word of God and Christ in everything. And therefore, it's not do what I say, honey. Let's just do what Jesus says. Are you with me on this? We follow Him. You know, sometimes we're going to, we try to get on the same page. And what you need to do is just tune into Christ and His Word, do things His way, and watch how harmony comes into your home. There's a right way and a wrong way to tune two pianos. The wrong way is to try to tune them to each other. You'll never get it. They'll never be fully in tune if you're trying to go key by key to try to tune them to one another. What you have to do is you tune them to what? One tuning fork. One tuning fork. And the one tuning fork in Christian marriage is Jesus Christ in His Word. we got to get in tune with Him in order to be in harmony with one another. That's what creates unity. That's what brings oneness in marriage. Wives, do you make it easier or more difficult for your husband to lead? Ladies, have you learned to follow your husband unconditionally? Listen to these words in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. You know this passage. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands... 
So that, here's the purpose, why do you do that? That even if any of them are disobedient to the Word, they're not following God's Word, they're not doing it right, they're not even saved, what do you do? That they may be won without a word by you, by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste, and here it is, what's it say again? Respectful behavior. Even if he does not, your unconditional respect is going to please Christ and impact your husband. Letter C, develop the habits of harmony in marriage. I, I, I think of it as the different parts of our body, the ears. Husband, have you learned to listen to your wife and not give in to the uh-huh? You follow what I'm saying? Every man in this room knows what the uh-huh is, right? Your wife is talking, and what do you do? Uh-huh, 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 but you're not listening to a single word. Now, I don't expect you to say amen, but I'm expecting you to admit it. You do it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Listen, she's the love of your life. She actually said yes when you proposed a miracle. Give her your heart. Work at giving her your heart and listen from your heart to her. Use your ears wisely. Uh, what about your eyes? Husbands, choose to make your wife the standard of beauty. The standard of beauty. Uh, you've heard me say this multiple times. I went to a restaurant once, and there were these pictures of these women up on the walls all around in this steakhouse uh, from the 1800s. And these were the gorgeous beauties of the 1800s. And I looked at them, and I went, no one in the world is attracted to these women, and I think these women are horrific looking. I I'm not kidding. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, this was the standard of beauty in the 1800s, and it's not even close to that today. And I'm thinking, well, it's society then that's determining what beauty is. So at that particular point, I made a decision. I said, well, wait, I don't need to listen to society. They're fallen. They got no credibility. I'm not listening to them. I'm going to listen to what I see in the Scripture. So I'm going to make my wife, Jean, the standard of beauty. She is the standard. There are wonderful, attractive women in this room. None of you measure up to Jean. Because she is the standard of beauty for me. Are you getting it? And I'm a scientist, so basically I did the scientific experiment at 40. When she turned 40, I watched all the women get off the plane who were 40, and she scored number one. And then at 50, I did the same thing. I watched all the 50-year-olds get off the airplane, and I went, ugly, 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 ugly. And then she won again. She was the standard of beauty for me. She's in her 60s now, and I'm telling you, that mama is hot. I can't believe that I, I actually got her. I, I, I'm shaking my head going, I can't believe you said yes. This is amazing. One pound away from wedding weight. Man, what a hottie. I'm telling you, your wife, you determine that she is the standard of beauty for you. And then you don't have to be bothered by other people. You don't have to be distracted. How about your feet? Husbands, are you demonstrating your willingness to do anything for her, including that list that she has of honeydew things at home, the things that need to be done so that her office and her world can be all that she desires it to be? Can't always be done all the time, but you can pursue it. Passion, 
Wives, have you learned to take care of your husband's physical needs in a way that you delight to you both, as well as not just an item to check off on your list of duties? Young wives don't always understand this, and this is why the Bible says you need an older woman to help you to learn to like your husband, to like him. Uh, They can help you. Find some mentors to help you. Speech, wives, are you choosing to esteem your husband, to build him up, to provide that element and foundation of respect that he's a leader, a parent, a, a lover, and someone that you actually mean from your heart that you love and treasure. Ladies, no matter what, whenever you complain about not having something, you're taking a stab at your husband. He's the provider, and you're tearing him down. If you respect him, it means you'll be content with what you have. And letter B, or letter D, excuse me, if Christ is all, then your marriage will be amazing. Let me describe it one last time. The reason why you need to be filled with the Spirit is so that the Spirit of God would manifest Christ through you. When Christ is manifested in your home, that's when marriage gets awesome. And when both husband and wife are manifesting the filling of the Spirit, that's when all of a sudden your home is saturated with what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love. And what's after that? What next? Joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness, and self-control. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that relationship? That's what God is talking about. That we pursue Him being manifested in our midst, doing our marriage for Him to His glory. When you do it His way to His glory, then you get the benefits of all that fruit and all that blessing, even during difficult times. Maybe for some of you it means... I've never had that, Chris. I've never seen that, ever. And maybe you need to turn to Christ. Maybe that's what drives you to realize that you're a sinner whose sins condemned before a holy God, and only as your sin falls on Christ on the cross, He rises from the dead, His righteousness covers you, and therefore you can stand in God's presence, and then He regenerates you so you can then live in the Spirit, and you can manifest the Spirit. For the rest of us, here's the challenge. As you pursue Christ as your first love, see what He does with your second love. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we pray that You would use Your Word to transform our lives. Maybe it would be used to draw some to Yourself. Maybe it would be used for the rest of us to live in such a way that You would be more manifested in our relationships and our home, that You would be glorified in our relationships and particularly our marriages. Help us to move even stronger towards your word and away from the chaos and the idiocy that's going on in the world around us. And Father, we pray that we might be able to uphold the truth of what you designed and show that your ways are the best ways. And we pray that that might be true of us as we worship you today in response. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.